Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke. Blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, and we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he granted us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will be go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Let's pray. O Lord God in heaven, we humble ourselves once again before your presence, acknowledging that your word has been divinely inspired. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and by it we are instructed, our souls are fed, and we learn your ways to order our lives in such a way that we live according to your will. Father God, we pray, O oh now, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Give us insight and wisdom to understand. More importantly, move upon us, Holy Spirit. Convict, exhort, rebuke, and correct us that we may be obedient to the word, we may be transformed by the word, we may be renewed by the word, and that, Father God, that we would become better people today after hearing your word through the sanctification of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would also anoint my mind, my lips, and my heart, that as I speak, you would use me as a vessel of honor to declare your praise. In Christ's name, amen. So, we are progressing through this very long chapter, 80 verses in Luke's gospel, his first chapter, and, and Luke has begun by introducing us to his gospel narrative of these two parallel accounts of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Christ. Uh, unlike the other Gospels, J uh, John's birth and John's uh, miraculous conception to his parents uh, is revealed to us. Luke gives us insight into that which the other Gospel writers did not. And in these two parallel accounts, we see that uh, just as much joy um, um, was brought through the family and to Israel by the birth of John the Baptist, how much more would it be for the birth of Christ? And so in this, we see that as this progresses, 
Through each event, there are songs being sung. The first of which last week was, was Mary's Magnificat, which we described as the first Christmas carol. And today we're looking at another uh, song. We can call it the second Christmas carol. And that is uh, Zechariah's, what theologians call his Benedictus. And the word Benedictus is Latin for blessing. And that comes clearly um, in verse 68, where he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It was the first words out of his mouth after he had been muted by, by a, a miraculous event when he expressed unbelief and doubt in Gabriel's announcement that his wife would have a child in her old age. And so we, are, we had moved to Mary. We were looking at Mary and what had happened with her. Now we're going back. We're circling back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, this little old couple who lives in a country town in Judea, and what God is doing in their lives. Um, just as important as it was for Christ to be born, God had promised in his word that he would bring forth the forerunner to the Messiah who would prepare the ways for his people. It was the last words of the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, who told uh, his people that, that God would send the forerunner, God would send uh, one who would prepare the way. And John the Baptist is the opening act uh, for Christ. He is the one who is the forerunner. He is the one to make way the, for the Lord and to prepare the people's hearts. And so John the Baptist was brought into this world through a divine miracle. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception and indeed was set apart as the last of the prophets of the Old Testament and a great prophet in and of himself. And so we have here today the the point that we've been building up to and that is the birth of John the Baptist and the great joy that was promised it would bring not only to Elizabeth not only to her husband but to all of God's people it would bring joy to everyone and it would bring joy not because John in and of himself is a person in whom they they will take the joy in but for who he prepares for and that is Christ um, it is a sign as we'll see that God has visited them and so um, we are going to be looking at this second song, this song of joy, this song of praise here today. And uh, when God loosens his lips after being mute, the first thing out of his mouth is to sing God's praises. Now I want you to think about that for a moment because Zechariah had been temporarily disabled by God due to his unbelief and went through a nine-month period where he wasn't able to talk he wasn't able to hear. He wasn't able to communicate. Uh, this must have been a very difficult time for him. But once the fulfillment of the prophecy came to pass, God opened up his ears, God opened up his mouth, and God opened up his heart. And so in the same way, we want us to open up our minds and hearts and for the Lord to prepare us and open us to what he's doing, not only um, in this uh, birth narrative here, but as we celebrate Christmas and thinking about the Incarnation, and more importantly, what he's doing in the kingdom of God day by day. Let's look first at the occasion of the song which is sung, and that is, as I said, the birth of John the Baptist. It says to us in verse 57, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. We know up to five months of her pregnancy she spent in solitude, and this is quite common, right? When a couple finds out that they're having a baby, they usually keep it a private matter until the, the gestation could be confirmed to the viability of the fetus could be confirmed. Now, we do things a little different today. We have sonograms. But here, of course, there was a time of waning and preparation. This was a, a spiritual matter. They weren't ready yet to tell the whole world of what was going on. When Mary came uh, to visit her, obviously, the baby jumped in the womb. And we believe at that point, uh, she was showing so people would have known that she was pregnant at the fifth month. Um, this was no ordinary child, and they kept it quiet until the time where God would open up the mouth of Zechariah, who was a priest. Um, however, what we have to see here is that there was a time where the secrets would be kept no more. It came time for her to deliver and to give birth, and the whole village would rejoice with her. It says in verse 59, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had showed mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. That's precisely what happened. God showed mercy to this 
old woman of faith in her old age. He demonstrated grace to her, and that's exactly what the name John means. God is gracious. God is merciful. And in that, the people rejoiced because not only was she experiencing this blessing, but it was a blessing for all God's people. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because this is the common response to the covenant community of God, right? The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 15, that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is part of the community of God's people. When someone in our church um, is blessed and, 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 and has a baby, we rejoice with them. We celebrate with them. And, and you know, we have baby showers and we, we, you know, when the baby's born, we rejoice and we exult. Why? Because someone in our, in our church family, God has blessed and has given a child to um, and so every time a baby is born, it is a gift from God. And I want you to remember that every time a baby is born, whenever a baby is brought to full term and delivered healthily, and the mother's healthy and the baby's healthy, that's a reason to rejoice and praise God. It is not a small matter. And so um, here, this woman who had suffered, uh, she was unable to have a child her whole life. It was even more profound, the joy that would come out of this. We should take joy for the successes and the blessings of other people in our lives. So often we fail to rejoice with those who rejoice uh, out of envy or jealousy or whatever moves us. It's easy to weep with those who weep, but to rejoice with those who rejoice means we genuinely are happy for and have joy for those who God has blessed or have succeeded in life in certain areas. And that's a good thing. It shows humility. It shows that we put others ahead of ourselves and that we delight in seeing God bless and encourage other people. And so I encourage you today as you think about that, rejoice with those who are rejoicing around you and, and encourage those as God is blessing them. There'll be times where we'll weep with those who weep and we should do both, but we ought to be and stand by and encourage those who are rejoicing. The next thing that happens is they name the child. And, and this was customary in Israel that eight days after a child was born, it would be circumcised. And in Jewish tradition, the baby would be named at that time. Um, customarily, it would be the father who would name the child, but his disabilities kept him out of the conversation. And in obedience and faith to Gabriel's announcement, Elizabeth follows her husband's instruction to name the child, as he said, John. The Lord is gracious. Now I want you to think about that as well, because when we look at names, there's a lot to names in the Bible, and all of the names combined tell us a lot about what God is doing. The word name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered again. As I had said earlier in this series, God had been silent for 400 years. For 400 years, there had been no prophet in Israel. It had seemed that God had forgotten. But now the Lord had remembered once again his promises and, and had revealed himself to the people. Elizabeth, her name means God is my oath. It speaks of God's faithfulness. And John, the Lord is merciful or gracious. And then, and then there's the sweetest name of all, the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves we can put it all together and see that we're talking about a God who remembers his people and is faithful to his promises and shows mercy and grace to them by providing his son to save them. And in the naming of this child, the people immediately respond with a sense of, what are you doing? Uh, this child should be named after the father as this was the custom and tradition in this uh, time and context. But Elizabeth says, no. No, um, the child's name shall be called John. And so what do they do? They go to the father. Now, the fact that they had to motion to him tells us that he might have been rendered deaf as well. He was, he was deaf and mute. And so what he does is he takes a writing tablet, which would have been made of wood and wax, and he writes his name is John, confirming that this was to be. Now, this is also a demonstration that there had been a turn in Zechariah's life. Remember, when he was a priest serving in the temple, he's offering incense before the Lord. And as he's offering incense alone in the holy place, there behold is Gabriel. He's not alone in the room. And Gabriel brings the announcement that his wife will indeed have a child. Terrified and dumbstruck by it, he didn't know what to say and he doubted. He said, how could this be? 
And due to his unbelief and due to skepticism, the angel rendered him speechless. He wouldn't be able to talk. And so this was like a temporary divine judgment on him for his doubt and for his unbelief. But immediately now, when he says his name is John, it demonstrates that Zechariah had a change of heart. God had done a work in his life, and now through the trials and discipline and the adversity he suffered, he turns around and demonstrates faith, saying, no, the boy's name is John. Now, isn't this the case? Does not God discipline us as well when we waver in faith, when we waver in doubt, when we waver in skepticism and we don't uh, fully believe and trust in God? At times, he will temporarily discipline us with trials and adversity and affliction. But remember this, discipline is never without a purpose. God doesn't discipline us just for the sake that he wants to harm us or hurt us. He takes pleasure in seeing us suffer. But God always disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness, that we may share in his righteousness, that we may trust in him and grow in faith. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9 Paul talks about his own afflictions. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. That's a pretty severe trial he went through. Do you ever feel like that? You're at a point where you just want to die? But what does he say? That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Trials are designed to make us trust in God, to depend on him and not on ourselves. When we think we have it all together, when we think we're in control of everything, God wants to say, okay, I need to, I need to hush you for a little while. I need to silence you for a little while until you believe in me and trust in me. And that's exactly what happened with him. Let me just remind you of this. Delayed faith is better than no faith, right? Zechariah had delayed faith and it's better than no faith. But immediate faith is better than delayed faith. It's always better to immediately trust in the Lord like Mary did when she heard the announcement from Gabriel. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I am here to do thy will. There is a contrast there and it shows us uh, as believers, although we may fall into times of doubt, uh, if we are truly his people, as I said earlier, we will persevere and we will, God will bring us to faith even through trials and adversity. And so God loosens his lips Imagine all that time in silence. Nine months, your tongue is twisted and you can't talk. Nine months, you're unable to say good morning. Nine months, you can't talk to your wife. Nine months, you can't tell anybody about the vision you had of Gabriel in the temple. And so finally, after he demonstrates faith, God loosens his lips. God loosens his lips. Imagine all he wanted to say. But it says here in verse 64, he spoke blessing. God. He spoke blessing God. He spoke blessing God. I think this is, this is an amazing thing because it speaks to us of salvation. This is what salvation is about. When God saves you, when God loosens your lips, because you see, prior to coming to Christ, we are all dead in sins and trespasses. And when we come to faith in Christ, there is an awakening, a spiritual awakening. Our minds are open. Our hearts are, are rendered, for, go from stone to flesh. Our, our lips are loosened. Our ears unclogged. Our eyes, our blind eyes. And, and, and we have new life and we're able to understand now and see who Christ really is. And what could you do but praise God? I know when I first got saved and someone shared the gospel with me, uh, I was quoted the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's what brought me to faith. And, and when I heard that parable, it, it said there are more angels, there are angels rejoice in heaven over one soul that is saved. I'll never forget walking home that day. I was walking down South Broadway in Yonkers singing and rejoicing because I got saved. I was blessing God. I said, if the angels are rejoicing, I better rejoice too. Like if you get saved and, and God has delivered you from your sin and, and showed you mercy, we go, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, oh, there's excitement, there's joy. There's nothing dull about it. And so what happened with, here with Zacharias was, a, was a, a figure of what happens to all of us when God saves us. He looses our lips and praise God. Well, let's get into the blessing now. Let's get into the song. 
Now, verse 67 tells us that not only was Zechariah's loose, his lips loosed, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a, this was a prophecy. This was, a, this was the word of God. That's why it's recorded for us in Scripture. The man is now uh, filled with the Holy Spirit as, as, like the prophets of old. And he's speaking forth the words of God. And, and in this blessing that begins with, a, it's a blessing upon God. And it's a blessing upon his son. It's a, it's a double blessing, but most of the blessing is to God. And it's an expression, right? When we bless God, right? How could we bless the blesser, right? We cannot do that. God blesses us in all ways. But we bless him and it's an expression of gratitude and joy towards God and who he is to us. It's a way we reciprocate the benefits that we've received from being God. We bless him. We bless him because he's blessed us. God doesn't need our blessing, but we bless him because he is blessed. He is most holy. He is, he is worthy of magnification and glory and honor. Blessed be the Lord is a common refrain in the Old Testament. Read through the book of Psalms. How many times blessed be the Lord is used over and over and over as a refrain. I am often think of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives us of our sins. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That we would bless God. And this blessing is both retrospective and prospective. It is retrospective and prospective. He's looking back upon all that God has done for Israel in times past. And yet at the same time, it is prospective of what God is going to do. A little word of encouragement here. When in our prayer life, when we're praying, when we're praising God, it should be retrospective and prospective. Thanking God for what he's done and praising him for what he's accomplished and what he's achieved and how he has revealed himself to us in life through the adversities, through the trials and through the blessings and through the good things. And yet blessing him prospectively, knowing what he's going to do. God is not just the God who acts in the past. He's a God who's already acting in the future. He's already achieving things for us in our future. He's already determined and he's planning a future for us where he's going to reveal himself and sanctify us and draw us closer to him. We bless God retrospectively and prospectively. And so let's unpack this. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he's blessing Yahweh, the God of Israel, not the God of the pagans, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is why he's blessing him, for two specific reasons which are connected, because he has visited his people and has redeemed his people. Notice it's in the past aorist tense. This is something that God has done already. As far as Zechariah's concern is that God has visited and redeemed his people already. It is accomplished. God has begun something. He's going to finish it. And that has begun. His visitation took place when he announced the birth of John the Baptist. And of course the birth of Christ. It means things are starting to move. 400 years of silence. 400 years of being alone. And God has now visited them. Now, I want you to stop and think about the term visitation here and the word visit. It's an interesting word in the Greek vocabulary as we look at the original form of it because the word visit is the noun form of the verb episkopos. Now, if you're familiar with the word episkopos, it sounds a little bit like the term Episcopalian, right? The Episcopalian church. The word episkopos is found in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it is, it is referring to the office of the bishop or the overseer. That is the, the word for bishop or overseer. It is the, the word episkopos. And the verb form of that, episkopomai, um, is it, it has a similar meaning to it. And I want to kind of break that down a little. I want you to see the importance of this. Because when you think about the word episkopos, the root word, skopos, is a word that is familiar to us also. It's a, it's a translated scope. And when you think of something that's a scope, it's associated with what you see. It's associated with vision. 
If I have a hunting rifle, I put a scope on there. It helps me to see down the line where I'm shooting. Or if I'm looking at something very small, I use a microscope. Or if I want to look at the heavens, I look at a telescope. The word scope has to do with vision. It has to do with looking. It has to do with seeing. And as we think of this word, we think of the relationship of the word to visit with vision, right? They're both very similar. And if you think about when you visit someone, what are you doing? You're going to see them. If I am coming to visit you at your house, I'm coming to see you in person. This is not a Zoom meeting. This is not a text message. If I'm visiting you, I want to see you in person. I want to have a personal interaction with you. And in that same sense here, we have to see that God's visitation was that he was coming to see his people. There was an actual interaction here. But moreover, when you go back to the root word episkopos, you see that that word means bishop or overseer, or more importantly, supervisor, right? The bishop or the elder of the church is a supervisor. He has supervision. He he watches over God's people. And in the same way, God is the supreme supervisor. 1 Peter 2.25 tells us that he is the overseer of our souls, right? We have under shepherds like me and other pastors who oversee the church, but Christ is the supreme overseer. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from God's knowledge. Matthew 10.29-30 says, And at times, God comes to inspect and see and visit his people. This is rooted in the the Greek culture, this word too, as well. The background to it is interesting. It was used in Koine Greek to describe when Greek generals would come and do inspections on the military. Anybody here have a military background? Raise your hands. All right, we have a couple. Right? When When a supervising officer comes to the barracks and they they do an inspection, they look to see if everything is in order. If everything is in order, you get a benediction. You get a congratulate, you know, well done. But if everything's out of order, what happens? Well, you're, you're punished. You'd be, you'd be on latrine duty, right? On the, and this is the same thing. When God comes to visit, God could come visit either for a blessing or for judgment. God comes to visit. He comes to inspect. He comes to see what's going on. I remember when I worked in a restaurant, the owner would come once in a while and he would come by surprise and he would walk around and inspect everything and he would go like this. Where's this dust? Now, God isn't like that, obviously. But what it tells us here is that God is coming to visit Israel and Zechariah is rejoicing in it. And I bring this out because it's very important. It's important for the very essence that God is coming not for judgment. He's coming not to bring uh, condemnation. God has visited Israel for blessing. He has visited Israel to do good for them because his word can also be used as it was in Matthew 25 when Jesus says, when I was in prison, you came to visit me. The visitation there was to come see the person to do good for them, to bring blessing to them. And that's precisely what's happening here. And the good is the redemption of his people. God has come to visit and bring redemption to his people. And he does this, as we see, by raising up a horn of salvation. Who is the horn? The horn is Jesus Christ. The term horn in the the Old Testament is often used as a metaphor, as a symbol for strength and power. When you think of horns, you think of goats, and you think of rams, and you think of ox and bulls, right? You see bulls coming, charging at you with with their horns. What do you do? You, You run away, right? You get gored by a bull. It's pretty severe. Well, you also know the expression, right? That person's strong as an ox. I find, that, I find that interesting because in the ancient church, the four gospel writers were often associated with different symbols. And the gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke is often associated with the ox because he presents to us Jesus as the horn of God's salvation. It's the strength, it's the power through which God is about to save and redeem his people. He's going to buy them back. He's going to purchase them with his blood. He's going to set them free from sin and death. This was the power of salvation of God. 
We know that he's speaking of Christ here. And it's interesting that in his prophecy and in his song, he's not singing about his son first. He's singing about the one to whom his son is going to prepare the way. He's singing of Jesus because he's from the house of David, verse 69. This is a Levite. His son's a Levite. But he's talking about one from the house of David. He's talking about Christ, the messianic king who God had promised would come. God was visiting his people. He had already saw Mary. He knew Mary was pregnant. He rejoiced with his wife Elizabeth, although he wasn't mentioned. I am sure that he shared the same joy and the same delight that Elizabeth did. And so we see that that God, he's praising God for the visitation, for the redemption through Christ, who is the horn of salvation, the house of his servant David, as he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 53. We look back to Micah's prophecy and we look to the, all of the prophets of old and they all point to Christ. God had promised he was sending his son. God had promised he was going to send a Davidic king, the Messiah, who was going to bring salvation for his people. God is as good as his word. You know, one, one way that you, can, uh, um, that you can confront people who do not believe in the Bible, who don't believe, is that, oh, the Bible's just, just man's, man's word. Man wrote it down. It's not divinely inspired do you know how many prophecies have been fulfilled to the T that God had spoken through his prophets? Hundreds of prophecies and, and all of them were fulfilled to the T. God is, is inspired the word. He spoke through the prophets and they point to Jesus Christ. God had fulfilled his purpose and plan through Christ. And what is that purpose? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. We see salvation come up first in verse 68 and then verse 71 we see saved. And if you go down further in verse um, in verse 77 it says to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Now clearly the, the Jewish people in the first century had a different concept of salvation. Notice he's saying that we would be saved from our enemies in the hand of those who hate us. Verse 71, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. Zechariah, although filled with the Holy Spirit, may not have understood the full purpose of God yet. And that is because God was not coming to simply deliver the Jewish people from the Romans. He wasn't, he wasn't coming to deliver them from their political enemies. God had come and sent his son to save them from a much bigger enemy, a much greater threat. Sin. To save his people from their sins. God came and sent his son into the world that we would be saved from ourselves, be saved from death, to be saved, more importantly, from the wrath of God. Because sin invites the wrath of God. Our rebellion and our slavery to sin, our commitment to our personal agenda, our commitment to our pride, our commitment to the world, our commitment to being selfish and doing things our way has caused an offense to God. It is, it is an offense against His holiness. We are lawbreakers. We are criminals in the court of God. We have violated God's holy commandments. And as a result, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We are deserving of judgment. Turn to your Bibles to Romans 5. Romans 5 tells us this. In verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified with blood how much more we shall be saved we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God don't you think that we're being saved by Christ from the wrath of God the ultimate deliverance is that Christ through his death and resurrection we've been delivered and spared and saved from the wrath of God we are saved from God by God to God. 
That's what salvation is all about. He is the horn of salvation. He, it is through him we are saved. This is what the song of Zechariah is all about. It's what Christmas is all about. Our Christmas songs, if you turn on the radio, it's you know, a lot of the foolishness on radio, but, but the true Christmas carol exalts the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Christmas is all about. It's about salvation. Christ came to this world not to be a good example, not to, to, to uh, teach us morality, although those things are true. The ultimate purpose why Jesus came to this world is to save us. And if you don't think you need saving, then may God open your eyes. That's the greatest darkness when we think, oh, I'm good. I'm good. That's one of the things we, when we do evangelism, we talk to people in the streets. First thing people say, I'm good, I'm good. Really? All right. We all think we're good. But then you speak to that same person when they get a diagnosis and say, you have six months to live you have terminal pancreatic cancer. Then all of a sudden, they're not too good. See, life and death has a way of bringing to reality our need for salvation. The closer we come to dying, we have a reality of a reality check of who we are. And we're going to stand before a holy God, our creator. We're going to have to give an account for ourselves. God is real. Oh, that's what salvation is about. And the beautiful thing is God has provided the way of salvation. He's done it for us. We can't save ourselves. You cannot rescue yourself any more than a drowning man could rescue himself in the middle of the ocean. The only way you could be saved is God has to save you. God has shown his faithfulness. His covenant promises, his oath to Abraham, our father, verse 73. Uh, you know, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham and he made a promise that, that he would have a son and, and his seed would fill the earth like sand uh, fills the seashore, like the stars fill the sky. And three times that covenant is ratified, he would give him the, the land of Canaan as a gift but more than importantly, he says, through your seed, through your people, all the nations will be blessed. It's interesting that Zechariah doesn't point back to the Mosaic covenant. He doesn't point back to the law. He's going back to Abraham that, that God made a promise that through Abraham's seed, all the nations will be blessed. And although Zechariah didn't understand it fully, later Paul the Apostle would tell us in Galatians 3 that God did keep his promise through Jesus Christ. You see, the blessing to all nations, to all peoples, uh, was expanded beyond the borders of Israel, was expanded beyond the borders of the Jewish people, and this would be to all uh, the world, to all nations, to all peoples, to all tribes and all tongues. It was a fulfillment, and that blessing is through salvation in Christ. Look in your Bibles in Galatians 3, 7. Know this then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. blessed. So then those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The gospel was preached in that promise. And God kept his covenant you see, the gospel didn't just come about when Christ began to preach the gospel. The gospel was preached in Genesis 3.15 when, when God said to the woman, your seed will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of, of your seed. That seed again was promised through, through Abraham and through your seed all the nations will be blessed and the seed is Christ Jesus. God has fulfilled his oath and his covenant. He was preaching the gospel in the Old Testament. It was the good news that God would, would open his arms and redeem all of mankind and is through Christ. What more reason to sing? Verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days we will serve him. God has called us to serve him. God has called us to serve him without fear. And our service is in holiness and righteousness. God has called us and set us apart as a people for himself that we may honor him and glorify him. 
God doesn't save us so that we could simply live our best life now so we can go out and spend all the money we want and have prosperity and, and have no sickness and just have fun. God didn't save us for that. Those are some blessings that come along the way. God allows us to enjoy life. It's a blessing from God. It's a gift from God. But God didn't save us for purpose. He saved us that we may serve him in holiness and righteousness. That is the purpose of redeeming mankind, that he may restore the image of God in us. And that image restored is the image of holiness and righteousness. God created us to reflect him, to, to, to be his image bearers. And part of reflecting him is that we would be like God and God is holiness and God is righteous. And we are told, be ye holy as God is holy. That is, again, the center of Christmas. Boy, I could preach this. You really want to know what Christmas is about? It's about holiness and righteousness. Sing about that. Talk about that around the table on this holiday. Oh, we can't do that. We can't achieve that. But through Christ, we are made holy and righteous. That's the whole point is that in ourselves, we will never achieve the holiness and righteousness that God requires of us. But it's through the righteousness of Christ we receive by faith. We are clothed. We are clothed in the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. And even in the midst of our moral failures, God looks upon us as he would look upon his only son. Finally, he turns and directs his attention now to the blessing of his son. And you, child, you could just imagine Zechariah holding up his son before God and dedicating him before the Lord. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That is a declaration that God himself had given, not Zechariah's. The angel, the archangel Gabriel came from heaven and met Zechariah and told him, your son will be a prophet before the Most High. What, what a, I mean, just think about this. Whenever you have a son or a daughter, you have a baby, you, you have high ambitions and aspirations for your children, don't you? Every parent has high ambitions and high aspirations for their children. How, how could you imagine Zechariah's? Not only did he have great aspirations for child, but he knew his child was going to be a prophet of God. The joy of that. And you will go and prepare Go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Oh man, again, he's hearkening back to Malachi 3.16. He's referencing the text in the scripture that speaks of God raising up the forerunner to Messiah. And he's saying, you son will be the one to prepare the way before the Lord. When we fast forward 30 years, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel hair and a leather belt like Elijah the prophet. And he's preaching, what? Repent. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. How do you prepare the way for God to come into your life? You prepare the way of God by repenting. You prepare by saying, I had enough of sin. Christ came to forgive me of my sins and so therefore I don't make sin a part of my life. I no longer live for sin and live for pleasure. I live for God. It's saying I've had enough of sin. That's repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's saying the things I once loved and cherished I now hate and despise and the things I once hate and despise I now love. It means turning from the filth and disgust of this world and of my pride and turning to humility and turning to Christ and turning to life, turning from death to life, from darkness to light. That's repentance. It's a U-turn. And that's what John the Baptist came to do. He came to speak about the knowledge of salvation. He came to prepare the way for Christ and that is through repentance. Listen, the other day I was in Manhattan going to the Foundations Conference and the directions, I haven't been in Manhattan, I haven't driven there in a while and it's crazy. Wow, there's bike lanes now. So I got to watch the bikers. I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a hazard before. And then there's cameras everywhere. So if you go one mile over the speed limit, they get you. If you go through a red light, they get you. But I had to get in the parking garage by 10 a.m. 
And if I didn't get in the parking garage by 10 a.m., I was gonna have to pay full price. It was an early bird special, and it was, it was 9.58. I was two blocks away, but because it was a one-way, and there was a sign, don't make a left, and don't go this way, and don't go that way, I didn't know what to do. I said, what am I gonna do? I, I don't know, I'll find out if I get a ticket in the mail by next week, but I busted a U-turn on 26th Avenue, I cut over to the bike lane. I did something crazy. How many times have you had to make a U-turn because you were going the wrong way? Well, I can tell you this. If you're trucking along through life, doing your own thing, when someone talks to you about the Lord and you say, I'm good. And if you're just living life according to the flesh, doing what you feel like, what you want, when you want, you're going the wrong way. And Christ, Christ cannot come into your life until you make the U-turn, until you repent. The beautiful thing is, is that when you do repent, it is God who grants you the ability to repent. And so it's all of God's grace. He goes on to say, to give light to those who are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That verse in verse 78, the ESV says, when the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The King James Version says, when the day spring cometh. Jesus Christ is not only the son of God, he is the bright son of righteousness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world and he who walks in me shall never live in darkness. Jesus Christ is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. There is no way to God but through him. You try any other way, it is Darkness. Living apart from Jesus is darkness. Moral darkness. Loneliness. Darkness connotes loneliness. It connotes alienation. It connotes blindness. It connotes misery. In fact, the Bible says that hell will be utter darkness. Because to be away from God forever in hell means to be in utter separation and judgment. The light is shining upon us. The day spring cometh forth. God is visiting us. May we look to his light. May it guide our paths, direct our feet as he speaks forth to our word and give knowledge of salvation. Let me conclude the birth of John is good news indeed. It is, it is a gospel story, but it leads to the bigger gospel narrative, the birth of Christ. And when Zechariah's loose lips were loosed, loose lips, as a loose lips sink ships, loose lips praise God. That was the immediate result. You know, later down in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus speaks of John the Baptist. He was the greatest man ever born among women. He says, Go and tell John when John was questioning whether Jesus was a Messiah. And he says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. We had the good news preached to us. God has set us free. He's opened our ears and has opened our eyes and he's given us new hearts and we should be moved to praise him. One thing I cannot understand and I've ceased to grasp is how any person who's been born again, who's been saved by God, cannot sing. When I first got saved, I was immature and I didn't like coming to sing. I used to like just giving me a sermon. But as I developed and grew in my walk with God, the more I understood how much God saved me, what he did for me, I could not help but to sing his praises. Singing is a reflection of the joy in our heart that we've understood that God has forgiven us and delivered us. 
Let me leave you with a few verses. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, God put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 107, 21. Let them thank the Lord for steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell his deeds in what? Songs of joy. Psalm 118, 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And then the New Testament brings us all together. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we sing in closing, I want to hear your voices. And just remember this, when we get to heaven, we're going to be doing a whole lot of singing. Revelations 5.9 tells us that we will be around the throne of Christ singing his praises forever and ever. And it'll be sanctified music. It'll be, we'll all have, we're all going to have tenor voices. It's going to be joyful with a myriads of angels. I can't wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once again. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the joy that you brought not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth and the people of Israel in the first century, but the joy that continues to overflow to us through the understanding of the gospel and through Jesus Christ. I pray now that our joy would overflow as we sing your praises now, Lord. Let us sing really to honor you Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us, that you, even this coming week, Father, we pray that we'd have a great turnout as we sing those carols at, uh, at Emory's building and that we would lead more to you, Jesus, that they would see your light. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand as we sing one last.